Part 1, Chapter 1 of The Patrician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Patrician by John Galsworthy. Part 1, Chapter 1. Light, entering the vast room, a room so high that its carved ceiling refused itself to exact scrutiny, travelled with the wistful, cold curiosity of the dawn over a fantastic storehouse of time. Light, unaccompanied by the prejudice of human eyes, made strange revelation of incongruities, as though illuminating the dispassionate march of history. For in this dining hall, one of the finest in England, the Caradoc family had for centuries assembled the trophies and records of their existence. Round about this dining hall, they had built and pulled down and restored, until the rest of Monkland Court presented some aspect of homogeneity. Here alone they had left virgin the work of the old quasi-monastic builders, and within it unconsciously deposited their souls. For there were here, meeting the eyes of light, all those rather touching evidences of man's desire to persist for ever, those shells of his former bodies, the fetishes and queer proofs of his faiths, together with the remorseless demonstration of their treatment at the hands of time. The analyst might here have found all his needed confirmations. The analyst from this material formed the due equations of high birth. The philosopher traced the course of aristocracy from its primeval rise in crude strength or subtlety through centuries of power to picturesque decadence and the beginnings of its last stand. Even the artist might here perchance have seized on the dry, ineffable, pervading spirit as one visiting an old cathedral seems to scent out the constriction of its heart. From the legendary sword of that Welsh chieftain, who by an act of high, rewarded treachery had passed into the favour of the conquering William and received, with the widow of a Norman, many lands in Devonshire, to the cup purchased for Geoffrey Caradoc. Present Earl of Valleys, by subscription of his Devonshire tenants on the occasion of his marriage with the Lady Gertrude Semmering, no insignia were absent, save the family portraits in the galley of Valley's house in London. There was even an ancient duplicate of that yellow tattered scroll royally reconfirming lands and titles to John, the most distinguished of all the Caradocs, who had unfortunately neglected to be born in wedlock by one of those humorous omissions to be found in the genealogies of most old families. Yes, it was there, almost cynically hung in a corner. For this incident, though no doubt a burning question in the 15th century, was now but staple for an ironical little's tale, in view of the fact that the descendants of John's own brother, Edmund, were undoubtedly to be found among the cottages of a parish not far distant. Light, glancing from the suits of armour to the tiger skins beneath them, brought from India but a year ago by Bertie Caradoc, the younger son, seemed recording how those who had once been foremost by virtue of that simple law of nature which crowned the adventuring and strong, now being almost washed aside out of the main stream of natural life, were compelled to devise adventure, lest they should lose belief in their own strength. The unsparing light of that first half-hour of summer morning recorded many other changes, wandering from austere tapestries to the velvety carpets, and dragging from the contrast such proof of a common sense which denied to the present Earl and Countess 
the asceticisms of the past. And then it seemed to lose interest in this critical journey, as though longing to clothe all in witchery. For the sun had risen, and through the eastern windows came pouring its level and mysterious joy. And with it, passing in at an open lattice, came a wild bee to settle among the flowers on the table athwart the eastern end, used when there was only a small party in the house. The hours fled on, silent, till the sun was high and the first visitors came, three maids, rosy, not silent, bringing brushes. They passed and were followed by two footmen, scouts of the breakfast brigade, who stood for a moment professionally doing nothing, then soberly commenced to set the table. Then came a little girl of six to see if there were anything exciting. Little Anne Shropton, child of Sir William Shropton by his marriage with Lady Agatha and eldest daughter of the house, the only one of the four young Caradocs as yet wedded. She came on tiptoe, thinking to surprise whatever was there. She had a broad little face and wide, frank, hazel eyes over a little nose that came out straight and sudden. Encircled by a loose belt placed far below the waist of her Holland frock, as if to symbolise freedom, she seemed to think everything in life good fun. And soon she found the exciting thing. Here's a bumblebee, William. Do you think I could tame it in my little glass bog? I know I don't, Miss Anne. And look out, you'll be stung. It wouldn't sting me. Why not? Because it wouldn't. Of course, if you say so. What time is the motor ordered? Nine o'clock. I'm going with Grandpapa as far as the gate. Suppose he says you're not. Well, then I shall go all the same. I see. I might go all the way with him to London. Is Auntie Babs going? No, I don't think anybody is going with his lordship. I would if she were. William? Yes. Is Uncle Eustace sure to be elected? Of course he is. Do you think he'll be a good Member of Parliament? Uh, Lord Milltown is very clever, Miss Anne. Is he? Well, don't you think so? Does Charles think so? Ask him. William? Yes. I don't like London. I like here, and I like cotton, and I like home pretty well, and I love Pendridony, and I like Ravensham. His lordship is going to Ravensham today on his way up, I heard say. Well, then he'll see Great Granny. William? Here's Miss Wallace. On the doorway, a lady with a broad, pale, patient face said, Come, Anne. All right. Hello, Simmons. The entering butler replied, Hello, Miss Anne. I've got to go. I'm sure we're very sorry. Yes. The door banged faintly, and in the great room rose the busy silence of those minutes which precede repasts. Suddenly, the four men by the breakfast table stood back. Lord Vallis had come in. He approached slowly, reading a blue paper, with his level grey eyes divided by a little uncharacteristic frown. He had a tanned, yet ruddy, decisively shaped face, with crisp hair and moustache beginning to go iron-grey. The face of a man who knows his own mind, and is contented with that knowledge. His figure, too, well-braced and upright, with the back of the head carried like a soldier's, confirmed the impression not so much of self-sufficiency, as of the sufficiency of his habits of life and thought. And there was apparent about all his movements that peculiar unconsciousness of his surroundings which comes to those who live a great deal in the public eye, 
have the material machinery of existence placed exactly to their hands, and never need to consider what others think of them. Taking his seat and still perusing the paper, he once began to eat what was put before him. Then, noticing that his eldest daughter had come in and was sitting down beside him, he said, Or having to go up in such weather? Is it a cabinet meeting? Yes, this confounded business of the balloons. But the rather anxious dark eyes of Agatha's delicate narrow face were taking in the details of a tray for keeping dishes warm on a sideboard, and she was thinking, I believe that would be better than the ones I've got after all. If William would only say whether he really likes these large trays better than single hot water dishes. She contrived, however, to ask in her gentle voice, for all her words and movements were gentle, even a little timid, till anything appeared to threaten the welfare of her husband or children. Do you think this war scare good for Eustace's prospects, father? But her father did not answer. He was greeting a newcomer, a tall, fine-looking young man, with dark hair and a fair moustache, between whom and himself there was no relationship, yet a certain negative resemblance. Claude Fresnay, Viscount Harbinger, was indeed also a little of what is called the Norman type, having a certain firm regularity of feature and a slight aquilinity of nose high up on the bridge. But that which in the elder man seemed to indicate only an unconscious acceptance of self as a standard, in the younger man gave an impression at once more assertive and more uneasy, as though he were a little afraid of not chafing something all the time. Behind him had come in a tall woman, of full figure and fine presence, with hair still brown, Lady Valleys herself. Though her eldest son was thirty, she was herself still little more than fifty. From her voice, manner, and whole personality, one might suspect that she had been an acknowledged beauty. But there was now more than a suspicion of maturity about her almost jovial face, with its full grey-blue eyes and coarsened complexion. Good comrade, and essentially woman of the world, was written on every line of her, and in every tone of her voice. She was indeed a figure suggestive of open air and generous living, endowed with abundant energy, and not devoid of humour. It was she who answered Agatha's remark. Of course, my dear, the very best thing possible. Lord Harbinger chimed in. By the way, Braybrook's going to speak on it. Did you ever hear him, my Lady Agatha? Mr. Speaker, sir, I rise, and with me rises the democratic principle. Agatha only smiled for she was thinking, if I let Anne go as far as the gate, she'll only make it a stepping stone to something more tomorrow. Taking no interest in public affairs, her inherited craving for command had resorted for expression to a meticulous ordering of household matters. It was indeed a cult with her, a passion, as though she felt herself a sort of figurehead to national domesticity, the leader of a patriotic movement. Lord Vallis, having finished what seemed necessary, arose. Any message to your mother, Gertrude? No, I wrote last night. Tell Middleton to keep uh, an eye on that Mr. Courtier. I heard him speak one day. He's rather good. Lady Vallis, who had not yet sat down, accompanied her husband to the door. By the way, I've told mother about this woman, Jeff. Was it necessary? Well, I think so. I'm uneasy. After all, Mother has some influence with Milton. Lord Vallis shrugged his shoulders 
and, slightly squeezing his wife's arm, went out. Though himself vaguely uneasy on that very subject, he was a man who did not go to meet disturbance. He had the nerves which seemed to be no nerves at all, especially found in those of his class who have much to do with horses. He temperamentally regarded the evil of the day as quite sufficient to it. Moreover, his eldest son was a riddle that he had long given up, so far as women were concerned. Emerging into the outer hall, he lingered a moment, remembering that he had not yet seen his younger and favourite daughter. Lady Barbara down yet? Hearing that she was not, he slipped into the motor coat held for him by Simmons and stepped out under the white portico, decorated by the Caradoc hawks in stone. The voice of little Anne reached him, clear and high above the smothered whirring of the car. Come on, Grandpapa! Lord Valley's grimace beneath his crisp moustache. The word Grandpapa always fell queerly on the ears of one who was but fifty-six, and by no means felt it, and, jerking his gloved hand towards Anne, he said, Send down to the lodge gate for this. The voice of little Anne answered loudly, No, I'm coming back by myself. The car, starting, drowned discussion. Lord Valley's motoring somewhat pathetically illustrated the invasion of institutions by their destroyer, science. A supporter of the turf, and not long since master of foxhounds, most of whose soul, outside politics, was in horses, he had been, as it were, compelled by common sense not only to tolerate, but to take up and even press forward the cause of their supplanters. His instinct of self-preservation was secretly at work, hurrying him to his own destruction, forcing him to persuade himself that science and her successive victories over brute nature could be wooed into the service of a prestige that rested on a crystallised and stationary base. All this keeping pace with the times, this immersion in the results of modern discoveries, this speeding up of existence so that it was all surface and little root, the increased volatility, cosmopolitanism and even commercialism of his life, on which he rather prided himself as a man of the world, was, with a secrecy too deep for his perception, cutting at the aloofness logically demanded of one in his position. Stubborn, and not spiritually subtle, though by no means dull in practical matters, he was resolutely letting the waters bear him on, holding the tiller firmly, without perceiving that he was in the vortex of a whirlpool. Indeed, his common sense continually impelled him, against the sort of reactionaryism of which his son Milton had so much, to that easier reactionaryism which, living on its spiritual capital, makes what material capital it can out of its enemy progress. He drove the car himself, shrewd and self-contained, sitting easily with his cap well drawn over those steady eyes. And, though this unexpected meeting of the cabinet in the Whitsuntide recess was not only a nuisance, but gave food for anxiety, he was fully able to enjoy the swift, smooth movement through the summer air, which met him with such friendly sweetness under the great trees of the long avenue. Beside him, little Anne was silent, with her legs stuck out rather wide apart. Motoring was a new excitement, for at home it was forbidden and a meditative rapture shone in her wide eyes above her sudden little nose. Only once she spoke, when, close to the lodge, the car slowed down, and they passed the lodgekeeper's little daughter. Hello, Susie. There was no answer. 
but the look on Susie's small, pale face was so humble and adoring that Lord Varys, not a very observant man, noted it with a sort of satisfaction. Yes, he thought, somewhat irreverently, the country is sound at heart. End of Part 1 Chapter 1